Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. Thanks so much for listening to the Monday Match Analysis podcast version. The reason you don't hear that music right now is because this is going to be a two-part podcast. I wanted to make sure that I got up my reaction in full to the news yesterday that Grigor Dimitrov was positive for COVID-19. Um, I posted a video as soon as that news broke on YouTube, but I want to get it up on this platform. So first, you'll hear that. And then you'll hear my regular Monday match analysis, which is a conversation with Jeff Salzenstein. Uh, we broke down Sasha's Zverev serve probably deeper and better than than I've seen, quite frankly. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. I think you'll enjoy it, although it's a little bit visual. Hopefully it's still good on audio. While I have you guys, it's very much appreciated if you leave a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. It also helps for whatever reason if you unsubscribe and resubscribe. Help me climb up those charts, those tennis charts. Uh, it's all, it's all uh, very, very much appreciated. Uh, so here it is, part one of a two-part podcast today. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. There is breaking news out of Croatia and Monaco, and I'm afraid it's not good news. Grigor Dimitrov announced on Instagram about an hour ago that he has tested positive for COVID-19. Dimitrov has been an active participant in both legs of the Adria Tour. He played one match in Croatia yesterday morning against Borna Cioric before flying back home to Monaco this morning. He had a positive test. The news broke about 30 minutes before Andre Rublev and Novak Djokovic were set to play in the second leg of the Adria Tour final in Croatia. That match has been canceled, so there will be no conclusion to the second leg of the Adria Tour. Of course, there has been no social distancing over the course of the last two weeks whatsoever. Numerous images, it's not hard to find them, of Grigor Dimitrov having close contact with Novak Djokovic, Marin Cilic, and pretty much everyone involved in the Adria Tour over the last two weeks. And that also includes fans, including young fans, who will go back to their families. So first of all, I hope Grigor Dimitrov has a speedy and painless recovery. Second off, I hope that those, that, uh, those around him or at least not too many around him, were infected. We can also take a lesson out of this, and I hope that tennis takes a lesson out of this. That to not try to make absolutely zero effort in risk mitigation is silly and irresponsible, regardless of what the government says. And this is not going to be, I don't, I don't want to make a statement here as an epidemiologist, but I feel confident in saying that the virus does not care about borders. The virus does not care about what your government says. Tennis is in a unique position here. You can play tennis and socially distance. It's easy. And that's great. Let's take advantage of that. Let's be careful. Let's make an effort. Because people are going to test positive for coronavirus. It's going to happen. 
We've seen it all over the sporting world with all sports that have resumed, including students going back to college campuses in the United States of America to begin their training for the upcoming season. People are going to test positive. This is the world we live in now. And that is the risk we take. It's going to happen. So with that information as something that should be a given, something that should be accepted, that people are going to test positive, whether it be at the U.S. Open in late August or, or so on, people are going to test positive. It's going to happen. Well, the point of social distancing is that if one person tests positive, it's okay. That you can go on. That the rest of the event does not have to be canceled. The fact that they played this event and they decided, well, if one person tests positive, we're going to have to cancel the whole event because we're all going to touch and breathe on each other. That's probably not going to work out. They could have gotten lucky. It could have worked out. They could have had the entire age tour without a problem, but there was always the risk that this was going to happen. Was the Adria Tour a bad idea? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But was taking absolutely zero precaution a bad idea? Just by nature of one person testing positive, now you have to cancel the event? It doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't. And the U.S. Open is not going to be like that. And people will probably test positive. My point in saying, this doesn't mean that the Adria Tour never should have been a thing. This doesn't mean that the U.S. Open shouldn't be a thing. It means that we should make an effort to try to stay safe here. And I know my hindsight's 2020. I didn't. I didn't think it was my place to come down hard on the Adria Tour. Um, the the week after, or last Monday, I decided to point out that there has been no social distancing and leave it at that. And see how it plays out. But now that it's played out, I feel very comfortable saying that it didn't have to play out this way. It doesn't need to be this way. We are blessed that on a scale of 1 to 10, and I, I, I wish I had my source handy here, but I believe the CDC listed activities on a scale from 1 to 10 based on the risk of transmitting coronavirus, and tennis was a one, a one on the bottom of the scale. We have a safe sport here. But hugging and going out to clubs turns a safe sport into something that's just as vulnerable as anything else to the virus. Um, so that's all I got. More coming up on Monday. Um... On this, and again, I hope Grigor uh, recovers quickly and painlessly, and hopefully this isn't uh, this isn't too bad. The collateral damage. Hope everyone enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.
Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Jeff Salzenstein, the founder of Tennis Evolution and a former top 100 ATP pro. I think one of the most obvious and most important takeaways from what we saw at the Adria Tour over the last two weekends is that Alexander Zverev is still having a lot of trouble with his serve, particularly his second serve, high number of double faults, missing by not just a little, but oftentimes a lot. And I wanted to take the opportunity to dig into Zverev's second serve like I've never done before on this channel. And to do that, there's no one better to bring on than Jeff Salzenstein, who has studied the serve from a coach's perspective, who has a lot more technical knowledge than me. So uh, I, it, was, uh, it only made sense that I would enlist his help. He does a great job at Tennis Evolution with online coaching videos, both technical and tactical. But of course, first we get into the breaking news from yesterday. There is already a video up on my channel about uh, Grigor Dimitrov testing positive for COVID-19 and the cancellation of the Adria tour. But uh, I start on that topic with Jeff, and then we get into Zverev, mostly about the serve, a little bit about the forehand, about the mental game, about yips, all that good stuff. I think you're, you guys are going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Jeff Salzenstein. We're joined once again by the founder of Tennis Evolution, former top 100 ATP professional Jeff Salzenstein. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on again. Oh, just so excited to be here with you as things are kind of ramping up out there in the world of tennis in different ways. And we have a lot to talk about today. So uh, thanks for having me. Man plans, God laughs. This isn't the, the main reason why we originally uh, set this up, but yesterday, Grigor Dimitrov tested positive for COVID-19 and they had to cancel the Adria tour. The whole thing to me felt like a really big gamble and it looks like they've paid the price here. Right, and uh, Borna Korich as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so and Djokovic, by the way, uh, he got tested, but I don't think we have the results as of recording this right now. Uh, let's timestamp this. We're waiting on Djokovic's results. Right. So leadership has a price, right? And if you look at uh, if you look at you know how the world is evolving or devolving, depending on how you want to look at it, it's very important to have to to make decisions that look at all angles, look at a 360 degree view. And I saw your YouTube or your, your interview or your actual, your synopsis of the Adria tour where right after they had the players party and they're all dancing and shirts are off and everybody's sweating. And as you alluded to, it's a recipe for disaster when it comes to COVID. And so I just think that in this whole, in the whole scheme of things, we really need to take a step back and as you've alluded to, take every precaution necessary to create a safe environment for tennis. And I think it can be done, or at least you can do everything you can possible, as you've said as well, and I agree with you 100%, do everything that you can. And yes, there might be some cases uh, that, are, that come up positive, but, but don't be irresponsible or negligent with the actions that, that are not always taken. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think this had much to do with the U.S. Open. A lot of people were jumping to New York in late August and saying, oh, look at this. This is a terrible setback for, for New York. I look at this as completely two different things. This is, oh, they shouldn't play tennis and ignore all safety regulations. 
which has nothing to do with should they play tennis and do it in a way that's as safe as possible, right? Right. And I think, you know, the flip side, and sound like maybe I come down hard on Djokovic and his team for putting this tournament together, but the flip side is that, you know, we've been gone through a really tough time around the world. And to Djokovic credit, he wanted to put something together that could, could bring people together and give them something to be excited about. And, you know, if you just do that without fans, uh, it obviously takes, uh, takes some of the luster off of that event. So I think what happens is when you have limited cases, when your government says, hey, you know, you essentially don't have to worry about it, we're good, uh, we're pretty much out of the woods, it could be easy to do, make the choices that they did and um, ignore this invisible disease slash virus. Yeah, the last thing on this is um, Djokovic hasn't said anything. He's been dead silent, which I thought has been really interesting. We're, we're in an era in which PR statements don't normally take a while to come out, whether it's coming from the person themselves or actual, an actual PR person. But uh, we just haven't heard from Novak. I mean, what would you say if you were him? And I mean, what can he say right now? Well, it goes back to my initial comment about leadership. And I think wherever, whether you're running a business, whether you're running a tournament, uh, whether you're running a government, uh, uh, if you're the leader of the free world, it's important to study and uh, apply leadership qualities that people can follow. People will follow leaders, whether they're good leaders or bad leaders. And so in, in terms of your question, what would I say? I think about the mistakes that I make in my online business and granted it's a much smaller pool, but when I make a mistake, I email my, my subscribers and say, I made a mistake. And invariably I get an email back from several people that says, good on you for owning, owning it and taking responsibility. I mean, I think that's one thing that I've learned over the years. I don't know where I've learned it, but just take responsibility for your decisions and your actions. So to your point, hearing from Djokovic by now should have happened. And uh, probably at some type of a press conference, I, I think the, tw the tweets and the Instagram posts are a little weird to me. I mean, I think you could, in this day and age, you could make a video and get it up on Instagram and Twitter and right. say, listen, I made a mistake. I, I, I under, uh, underappreciated the, the severity of where we're at, and it was a big mistake. And, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to be better next time. I've had the same experiences. People appreciate when you, when you own up to your mistakes. And I do think that this is a, this is a chance for, for Novak to, to make amends by just saying, yeah, this, this wasn't a great idea. And I do hope he takes responsibility for it. Just by nature, the fact that you have one positive test and now it's, it's, a, it's a crisis for, for everyone else involved means that you did not take the, the proper precautions. And the Adria Tour official statement was disappointing and was kind of in denial about the safety provisions that it took as a whole. So I think Djokovic, I hope Djokovic's statement is a little bit better than the Adria Tour's official statement. Yeah. And one last thing I want to say is, you know, maybe there could have been a, a more of a middle ground with the tournament where did they really have to have ball kids? Uh, did they have to throw that player party? Probably not. They probably could have found a way to, to do this event and maybe even have some people in the stands, but not do it full bore the, the, the way that they did. 
they had kids day. I mean, they gathered a bunch of kids together for a picture. They played basketball. They hugged at the net. These things just aren't, they just aren't necessary. You can have a tennis tournament. Not in the new normal, not in the new normal. No. And I, I mean, again, we're, we're really lucky to have a sport in tennis where you can play somewhat safely when it comes to spreading this virus. And you know, that should be taken advantage of not um, ignored. Yeah. So obviously it sets the table for even more controversy and questions about the U S open. So that's going to be interesting as well to see how that unfolds. Absolutely. All right. There's no natural transition from a deadly virus to the serve of Alexander Zverev. Well, actually the serve, (laughs) there's a virus. It's if there's a virus, actually we could transition. So we want to talk about a different virus. No, I think one of the takeaways you have to be careful when you try to read too much into exhibition tennis, where players might get a little lazy sometimes. They might be experimenting, trying new things that they wouldn't with rankings points and prize money on the line. But I think one of the things that you can safely take away from Adriator tennis so far is that there have been demons over the course of the last 18 months with Alexander Zverev's serve. And those demons or those issues are not gone. They're still here. That's a tangible takeaway in my eyes. I, I would suggest that that demon, there's, it has increased twofold from what I saw. Uh, and we're going to get into that. This, this, is, this is a real problem. Now, there's a good news, bad news situation. The bad news is there's more scar I call it scar tissue. There's more scar tissue on this serve now than ever, based on what I observed, and I think you would agree. The good news is that there's always a chance for a comeback. We've seen, when when it comes to the serve, we've seen him have the yips before, and we think he's down and out, and next thing you know, he's donating his money to the fires in Australia, and he's running through the draw, and you think he might win the Australian Open. You think, how can a guy go from serving so poorly one day with 20 double faults to the next day being pretty solid on his serve, not at the level of a Sampras or a Federer or some of the others out there, but certainly this, there's a stark contrast. And so the good news is that if he gets the right focus up here and he makes a couple of tweaks technically, then he could actually, again, have one of the better serves in the world and contend for grand slams. But if he doesn't, it could be a sad case of an athlete going like this because they don't figure the serve out and they don't figure this out as it relates to that. It's amazing. I want to be self, a little bit self-reflective for a second because I know on my channel, Alexander Zverev has been scrutinized and put under a microscope more than any young player. <laughs> Not to say the others haven't been analyzed at length, but it seems like all the time we're talking about what Zverev can do better, what he should change. And, you know, there's so, there's so much there yet. He continues to be a top 10 player. Why, you know, to me, Zverev is just such an interesting case because it seems like there's so much more that he can get out of himself yet. He's again, a solid top 10 player on tour who can be really dangerous and make deep runs in big tournaments. The biggest challenge that I see as it relates to his overall game and development is if I compare him, and again, 
stages are different with ages. But if we compare him to Roger Federer, to Rafa Nadal, to Novak Djokovic in terms of their development, yes, they developed at different times. Yes, they went through slumps at different times. But I think one can argue that if you follow the arc or you follow the developmental pathway of those three players that are arguably the three greatest players of all time, and I realize that's a difficult standard, but you, you continually see them evolve and improve. You know, Nadal has learned to move up in the court. Nadal volleys better now than he did 10 years ago. Nadal has served well at times, then bad, then well. But there's this, I feel like there's this constant feeling that they're always improving. Federer has tweaked his technique on different shots. He's come over the backhand. And every time I watch Zarev, I, st I see the same player. I don't see a player that's making... They're not, it's not noticeable to the eye. Maybe he and his team are getting out there and working on these things and it's not translating match play, but I'm just not seeing a player that's evolving. And many players have said in the past, if you're not getting three to 5% better every year, you're getting worse. And that's where we might see him go as his career evolves. You look at guys like Roddick or Courier, they improved to a certain level. And then you saw this kind of downslide, whether it was injuries or them just not evolving their games. And this could be the case. It could go either direction with this young man. So we'll see. Right. I mean, Zverev, I don't want to say he did it to himself because that makes it sound like a bad thing. It's a good thing. But in 2017, he was a teenager winning Madrid, winning Montreal, um, or maybe it was Toronto, but Rogers Cup. You know, he was on this trajectory way ahead of his peers. If you're looking at where Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Shapovalov were at this time, I mean, they were nowhere near Zverev, and now they're right there. So not only have we seen that, well, maybe Zverev hasn't improved as fast as we might hope, it's also been very evident in the results. I want to go back to, to what you said. You used the word yips. I want to just talk about yips for a second. Have you ever experienced them as a player? And how would you define that? Number one, yes. And number two, the way I experienced it, here's the thing. Here's the irony. And I have compassion and empathy. It might not sound like it because I'm talking like an armchair quarterback, tennis coach, announcer right now. But listen, I got to 100 in the world. It took me eight, eight years to do it, seven years, two surgeries. Um, I was, a you know, when I was a freshman in college, I suffered from the high toss syndrome. You know, I had a platform stance. I'm sorry, I had a pinpoint stance. I moved my back foot up. It took a long time to develop. I remember going to a tournament my freshman year in college where I was barely breaking 100 miles an hour. And my stepfather came to watch me in Seattle, Washington. He hadn't seen me for a while. And he said, you're bringing icicles down from the, from the ceiling. Like the, this, your toss is so high. And I didn't even know that that had happened. And so I was double faulting once or twice a game in college my freshman year. I got on the pro tour and was known as having one of the bigger uh, serves on the tour after transforming it in college and beyond. And I threw in double faults. I got tight. I decelerated on the serve, which we see with Zarev. So the things that I see in him are things that I have personally experienced. I can't say that I experienced it to the degree that I'm seeing in this match, you know, where you're hitting second serves that land over the baseline or that don't even hit the, the net. Um, but I can relate 
to a certain extent what he's gone through. And I probably, in all honesty, I probably got the yips more than most pros, which is again, ironic that I had one of the bigger serves on the tour and still, still had some of those issues. Yeah. I, obviously I'm, I'm miles worse, worse than uh, Sasha Zverev and, and yourself, but I had it on my backhand for the first time for basically the, in the months leading up to the pandemic. And I just hit a bunch of balls, no pressure against a wall pretty much every day for a month. And uh, it seems like I've, I've just gotten over it just from all that no pressure hitting, but it becomes a thing where you, you feel like you've forgotten how to hit the shot. You feel like a beginner, you know how to hit it. You've hit it before, but it's very much um, a mental block. So a lot of people say, well, for Zverev, how much of it is mental? How much of it is physical? And the answer is probably that they're, they're very connected and it's both. Absolutely. There's, a, there's a, obviously a connection between the mindset of how you serve, how you look at your serve, and also on technique. And one, they, they work together. And so do, I don't, with the motion that he has right now, we're going to talk more about it. It's, it's not efficient. It's not in a good place. I still think he could be serving better than he is with the current motion that he has. He could be managing it a lot better than he is mentally. And the flip side is that if he makes one couple tweaks on his serve, he could be feeling completely different mentally. And from a mental standpoint, I know that when I step up to the line to hit a second serve, I can tell if I'm feeling a lot of anxiety that it might not be a great serve coming, coming off the strings. And so one thing that's helped me in the past, there's two things mentally, is that number one, you have to get super clear on your target and make the target really big. And I would be curious to see if he's actually, how he is visualizing where he wants the ball to go. I talk about imaginary windows above the net. So instead of actually hitting a spot, I, I want to aim above a certain imaginary window above the net and hit it through that area. And that can get your mind off of the 20 different things affecting you. So it's that tunnel vision on, on where to aim. But I used to do, you know, I used to hit hoppers of serves before matches just to make sure I could feel it. And I still got anxious at times, but I wonder how much he's going out and hitting second serves under pressure in practice where you know, someone's maybe talking while he's serving or they're seeing if he can get nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 to a spot. And maybe he can do it in practice, but I don't know how much he's actually hit trying to hit his spots all the time. So mentally, um, and then with his target practice, he probably has some work to do. So for you, was it basically tons and tons of repetition on the practice court? Is that what ultimately helps you get over your bouts of yips? I mean, that certainly helps the right type of practice, but I would say, and I was going to get into this a little bit more, and I'm just going to say it right now. When you get that anxious feeling, it's almost like you care too much and you almost have to like trick yourself into not caring or even trick yourself into, Hey, it's like, again, I've said this before to people around performance. It's okay to miss. Like when you start double faulting like this, it's almost like you're trying so hard or you care so much or you're so worried about the result. You got to get back to, okay, I'm just going to, if I miss it, I miss it. I'm just going to hit it to the middle of the box and 
you know, do the best I can, but not really care about the result. And it's easier said than done. But I've personally had experiences where I just step up to the line. I'm like, whatever. And I just hit to the middle of the box. And I do a lot better than when I kind of get in my head and I feel like I'm like, like I have to make the serve. Well, everyone would agree the the place you want to get to is where you're hitting a second serve and you're not, you're not thinking about the prospect of double faulting. You're thinking about hitting a good second serve and starting the point. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big, he's, it's a big, there's a big elephant in the room right now. Yeah. So look, he can, again, he can be a great player and double fault on 25% of his second serves, but he will always have that ceiling as long as this continues. Right. And the mental damage that it takes, like I know how much nervous energy I wasted because I had to worry about my serve. If you don't have to worry about it, if you're Pete Sampler, Sampras or Roger Federer and you just step up the line and you know you're going to make your second serves, it just takes the weight off of your shoulders that you can actually play. And so that, that there's more damage than just double faulting. It's, it's, it's psychologically, mentally a taxing toll to win seven matches in a slam, three out of five sets. It's not going to happen with that type of anxiety on the serve. That's a great point. It, it'll weigh on you. Okay, let's look, at, let's look at the tape. So you can always tell when it's the yips versus when it's just a normal, you know, run-of-the-mill double fault by the distance that a player misses. You're not going to see someone in a good state of mind miss a serve by, by five feet or in the middle of the net, but that's what we're talking about with Zverev. But throwing, throwing that aside, part of this is about having repeatable mechanics that you're comfortable with. So Jeff, what do you see in, in Zverev's serve mechanically right now? So there's a lot going on here. And I was telling you earlier that, gosh, this guy's so talented that I feel confident. You know, I've been studying the serve for, as a player and as a coach for, what, 25, 30 years now. Like, it's just in my DNA. I feel like if I had an hour with this guy, we could do great work if he was open-minded to it. And, and where we would start is the first thing is – and, and you notice this, Gil, but when he releases the ball, there, there's no shoulder turn happening. And this is something I've seen for a couple of years. I've mentioned this, but he almost has this inverse shoulder deal going. The dominant hitting side shoulder right here is actually to the right of his tossing arm. Now, if we were to do a side-by-side -side of Federer, at this stage of the swing right here, this is what I always look for is what's happening when the ball is released. His tossing arm, it's almost like it's going forward towards the net, straight towards the net. And that is a, that is a recipe for disaster in terms of, of building rhythm and tempo. At this stage of the swing, we would already see this hitting side shoulder, the dominant shoulder for Federer. We would see it to the left of the tossing arm. And we'd see right. this tossing arm or this tossing arm shoulder, it would be going out more towards this net post over here or even almost parallel to the baseline. So you'd see much more pronounced shoulder turn earlier in the motion. So Jeff, eventually he's going to turn his shoulders here, but it's about Absolutely. how late it happens. Yeah. I mean, look, the ball is four feet out of his hand and there is no movement in the arm, which again tells me there is no connect. There's no connection in his body right now. The shoulders, the arms, the turn, there's no coil in the hips. I mean, there's just a complete disjointed motion, and it makes sense to me why this thing is breaking down. 
if you go back to where he releases the ball, let's look at the right arm now because we focused on the, on the shoulders and the hip turn. The, the right arm has so much work to do when he releases the ball. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, and look, at, this is another thing. And we're gonna sh we're gonna, I want to show a close-up of his serve next where there's a front view. But look at how straight his dominant arm is. This is something I always teach. When you have a straight arm, what do you have? Tension. When your arm is slightly bent, you're going to have a relaxed arm. So yes, it's okay to have your arm straight at the beginning of the motion like this. But by right now, it should be bending, getting to the trophy position. And it's still very straight at this stage of the motion. You see Federer with a straight arm, and then right about here, he gets right to his trophy, and he is ready to fire yeah. up to the ball. Right now, the ball is – is it even at its highest point? Let's see nope. when this drops. There, right there's there. your highest point right there. And Zverev, you know, his, his right arm, it's not really – he doesn't have that right angle yet. There's no right angle. There's no turn. Um, there's not a lot of load in the hips. Um, I mean, it's hard to see, but he even has a little bit of a curve in his low back. We call this mm -hmm. an S posture. That's a big sign that he's not using his hips and his pelvis correctly. So, you know, we looked at serves from the U.S. Open, and his toss is dramatically – it's probably two feet higher than it was, and it was already a high toss before. But if this is the peak here, look at how much it drops before he makes contact. We're, we're at three to four feet there. So, Jeff, I'll, I'll put up the U.S. Open side-by-side -side in post-production so people will be able to see how much lower his toss was. But, again, another thing that we just talked about, which is getting, getting the right angle of the racket arm in the trophy position, eventually it happens. And that's kind of a common theme in his serve, that eventually he gets to the right spot. It's just very late. So that, that means he requires extra time and he buys that time in the toss. And that's why, that's probably why we see this incredibly high toss, right? Yes. He's moving so slow with his dominant arm. So then he's going to toss it higher to allow it to get into position. And you see here, he has a good shoulder turn. He has no, not a lot of hip turn, but that's because he has a pinpoint stance. So that's not as big a deal. What's the bigger deal is how long it takes his serve to develop to get to that trophy position. It, it reminds me a lot of Maria Sharapova. We know she had the yips on her serve. So I don't think it's an accident that a high toss and a late developing serve getting into trophy position can translate into some really bad double faults. I like this because I, uh, other people have pointed out how high the toss looks right now, but they haven't really gotten into why it is so high. And I think we've done that here. What are the side effects, in your opinion, when the ball is dropping at a rapid rate by the time you, you reach your contact point? What are the consequences of that? So that's a great question. You know, the way I look at it is sometimes when I don't have the answer, I say, okay, can we just model the best players in the world and see what they do and find the commonalities? And again, I think you could argue that Roddick, Sampras, Federer have some of the best serves of all time. And there are, again, there are different serves out there that are amazing, but let's just put them in a bucket. And if you studied how, how far their tosses drop, a lot of people think you're supposed to get the ball at the peak. That's not the case. 
the ball should actually drop, I would say about 12 to 18 inches. So he should be making contact about right there if his toss was significantly lower. So you wanna be aware of having a slight drop in the toss. And by having it drop so much and descending so much, which was your original question, for me, my obvious answer, which we've alluded to before, is it just, it takes so much timing to get the rhythm right when the ball is so much higher and it's dropping so much and you have to find a way to meet the ball at the right time. Also, I think because the rhythm is off, again, it may give you more time to think about the serve because you're waiting for the darn ball to come down. Um, so I don't know, Gil, if you, you want to piggyback on that, you might have some reasons why you think it causes problems. But the first thing I go to is, is look at what the best do and see if you can model them, even if you don't know the answer. Well, you just have me thinking. You have me running through the names of the best serves on tour. And you're right. You, you don't find a toss like this. You have you know, a Nick Kyrgios, a John Isner, a Milos Raonic. They all have somewhat low tosses, especially Kyrgios, especially uh, Isner. The ball, it's dropping a little, but not much. If you want to look at the other side for a little bit of balance, Juan Martin Del Potro has an extremely high ball toss. And uh, Tomas Burdich had a very high ball toss, but he had double faulting issues. So whenever you're talking about something technical in tennis, you can find examples both ways. But I think it's safe to say overwhelmingly the majority of the best serves on tour do not have a toss that looks anything like Sasha's Zverev's. When I'm teaching the serve, I want players to get to a trophy position in a very natural way. And usually that involves getting there pretty quickly. So once you release the ball, you start slow with your tempo. So it's okay to start it's okay to start slow here, but you just want to have the racket and the shoulders turning by now so that you can find that throwing motion. I mean, imagine, let's use an analogy of football. They always talk about with football, if you have a quick release, you can make it in the NFL. Well, that means you need to get that hand, that throwing hand to the slot, to that throwing position in order. You can't have it hanging down by your side until you get your arm in position and you set your feet you got to get it up there. And so that's also why I have players start in a half serve motion, a la Jay Berger, because a lot of players really struggle finding that trophy position in, a, in an efficient way with the arm bent enough. And so if you learn how to do it with a half serve, then you can start to graduate. If I was working with Sarah, I would start them in what I call a three-quarter serve as well, where the, I'd actually have the racket starting right here before he releases the ball. And then I would make him bend his dominant arm and get to the trophy position as soon as he releases the ball. And by the way, Marin Cilic had a high toss. And what did Goran Ivanisevic do with him? He got it to lower and made it a bigger weapon. I was playing on the tour when Cilic was there, and he had a high toss like Berdic. Big right. serve. But I've always even wondered with Del Potro. I bet his serve could be even better if it was more efficient. So if Ivanisevic was working with Zarev, I guarantee you in a month this guy would have – a monster serve with a low toss. I, I can't say guarantee, but I think he would certainly lower it because Goron had a low toss as well. Got it right probably at its peak. Bob Bryan, he's a guy who gets it right at its peak. So you want to get going with your motion. It, you don't want it to be too fast, but certainly this is on the, on the full spectrum of where you want to be. 
Well, Zverev, when he flattens it out and he hits big first serves, he, he does get good miles per hour on it. Oh, yeah. Bomb. There's so much, but it just takes so much time to load up. It's, it really seems like it's come at a price of his consistent kick serve, and that needs, to be, that needs to be your base. You need to be able to hit 10 kick serves in a row in the service box at, at the level that Zverev is, uh, is trying to reach. I really has out, reached, and he's yeah, just I wanna, behind I wanna, his peers. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, Gil. I want to point out something else, and I helped a player recently with this. I'm really big on a swing path that goes from left to right for a right-hander, especially on the second serve. And he's certainly going to go from left to right here. You can see the swing path start on the left side of his body. It goes to the right. But to make it even more extreme, to create even more topspin and kick, I have players finish on the right side of their body right here, like Stefan Edberg or Boris Becker. And what that does is it forces kind of that left to right extreme path that creates more topspin. And I think that Zarev is actually kind of coming around the ball too much. You can even see that ball is almost slicing a little bit. So what I would do is I would actually move his toss even more, a little more to the left, just a little bit maybe an inch or two to the left and force him to finish on the right side of the body and he would get massive spin. And then what we would do is we'd put targets, we'd put targets down three feet short of the service box. So not, you see a lot of targets put on the service, uh, service box here at, at the service line. I'd put it three feet short and make him make the ball land three feet short of the box. And what that does is it forces you to accelerate and get up and over the ball. And you get this like, it's like the ball drops off of a cliff. And with a guy as talented as this, it would take him 15 minutes probably to get the ball to drop short in the box if he had a visual target. So that's and another that's thing that could improve his technique just by aiming shorter in the box. The last thing I want to hit is the acceleration. And then, and then we'll move on from his serve. I used to, before I, I dug deeper, uh, I used to attribute the deceleration tendencies as the number one reason why Zverev double faults. Do you generally want a player swinging harder and faster on the second serve than they do on the first serve? Because I know that that's something that I've always aimed to do. And I think a lot of players on tour will actually take a harder, faster swing at the second serve than they do their, their first serve. Yeah, I've heard that before. I, I think it could be the same. I think it could be more. I think it's, it depends on the player. But the, the real key is what I alluded to earlier. If you put targets three feet short of the box and you say, listen, you're going to finish on the right side of your body. You're going to toss it a little bit more to the left. You're gonna, you, you don't get a point. So we will not give you a point unless the ball lands inside these tennis balls, let's say two feet inside the service line. So now you're taking the service line out of play. You're taking the long misses out of play. You've got to arc it and make it drop off the cliff. I think if you give a player at this level that kind of visual, and that kind of focus, they're going to start accelerating the way you're talking about. And they're going to find the acceleration at the right time. That's another key is when do you accelerate? And so his acceleration is probably not happening right at that correct moment to make the ball kind of grab and jump off the strings. And again, it's, it's a big problem, but with a player like this, with the right training, he could turn this around pretty quickly. 
All right. So I think there's no arguing that the number one thing that Zverev should be worried about right now <laughs> is his second serve. However, Jeff, you and I have both for a really long time now said as, as amazing as Zverev is defensively, he's a great counter puncher. He moves incredibly for his size. He just doesn't punish short balls. He doesn't take advantage uh, when he has a short ball, especially on the forehand side. And uh, that's something that we have noticed continue throughout the Adria tour. Absolutely. This is a guy that is what, six foot five, six foot six. He has 130 mile an hour plus serve. And he doesn't do enough with his forehand. I remember him playing Isner at the Miami Open in the finals. I was at that match live. I told my friends before the match, I said, listen, Isner's going to win this match because he, every big point, he's going to go after the Zarev forehand and Zarev's just going to struggle with it. You know, he's just going to, he's going to shank forehands in big moments. He has a bit of the yips on the forehand as well. And here's the thing. Tennis is a serve and forehand game, and you have got to hone your craft and master these two shots. That's what Djokovic did. He improved his serve and his forehand. Look what happened. Better, obviously, serve and forehand. Nadal, forehand. He's improved his serve as well. When you feel like your serve and forehand are your bread and butter, even if you have a, the best two-handed backhand in the world, like Djokovic does, if you have a serve and a forehand, you can win slams. I agree with you. I'm, I'm also on, especially team forehand. I think everyone recognizes how important the, the serve is in tennis, but man, I, I see a common thread here. The best forehands on tour are in really good shape. So, you know, we got a point here that I wanted to pull up. And so there's a couple things that, that you and I have both noticed, Gil. Number one, and we're going to show it right here with this forehand, he hits a serve makes the serve, and he gets this forehand. He's inside the court. What do you think Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer would do with this forehand? I mean, you see where Djokovic is standing. There, he's inside the baseline. Now, granted, Djokovic plays amazing defense, but I don't think that you, these guys would be backing up on the next shot after that first forehand from where he was in the middle, inside the baseline. He didn't take any risk on that forehand. It was very safe. You know, it was, if you're going to go cross court there, uh, which Djokovic, it actually looks like he was leaning that way, anticipating the cross court forehand. You see him split step to his right there. If you're going to go cross court there, it better, you better make the angle sharp. Otherwise, you're just not going to get anything out of this first forehand. 100% correct. This ball should go off the single sideline or it needs to be laced down the line, point over point over and it looks like he just rolls this ball back into the court and because of it he's now going to be backing up on his on this backhand that is not how you're going to beat the best players in the world that is giving up your advantage of serve and forehand right there even this ball right here this ball he steps in with a neutral stance from six feet behind the baseline. You're not going to see too many pros hitting a neutral stance for him. They might hit it from, from inside the baseline to really flatten it out, but not from back there. So his footwork is a little bit off as well. 
Yeah, I see a lot of players close up their stance um, on the approach shot when they're moving into the court. But I agree with you from, from that position, it's not conventional footwork. And then this ball right here, what is he now? So, so the beginning of the point, where was Djokovic? 12 feet behind the baseline. Zarev was inside the baseline on the first forehand. It, within two to three shots, you have Djokovic. It's hard to see from back there, but he's about four feet behind the baseline, three to four. And you have Zarev 12 feet behind the baseline, hitting an open stance forehand fine. But it's just not going to hurt. His forehand's not going to hurt anybody from back there. Yeah, and, and these points, they aren't in a vacuum. Um, if, you, if you take a large sample size, Zverev, more often than not, is going to be sitting back and counterpunching. He, again, he's really good at it. But something that I've often said is that he, he plays with the tactics of a young Andy Murray. He's just not the athlete. He doesn't have quite the speed or even the defensive skills of a young Andy Murray. So he's just not going to have that same success playing with that kind of shot selection. And look at this as well. He, remember, he hits this forehand. Now look what happens after this. This next forehand, he steps over and hits an open slant slice. Have you ever, in 20 years of watching Roger Federer play, see him hit an, a slice forehand when he's one step away from the ball? Yes, he'll squash shot it running across the court. But you will never see Nadal or Federer do that. This, as you just alluded to, is a 14-year-old junior tennis slice forehand just to get the ball back in. It's just not going to work against the best in the world. And Zarev, we talked about his serve and his forehand. What's the one shot that Pete Sampras dominated everyone with besides his serve? It was the, the running, running forehand. forehand. The running forehand was godlike. And Zarev simply does not own a running forehand. And so, yes, he'll be seven in the world for most of his career unless he improves his serve, he makes his forehand bigger, and that running forehand becomes a weapon. Yeah. Let's see how this point plays out, shall we? Maybe he wins it. Again, he's a great, great counterpuncher. Nope. He gets beat in, with right? a backhand down the line. All right. <laughs> I actually didn't know what was going to happen. So the, the suspense, that was not acting on my part. Yeah. Let's just take a look at the, the first. Okay, here's another point that I want to make with him too. Mm -hmm. I, okay, he hits a big serve and then the first ball, okay, sometimes you have to slice, but he's four feet inside the baseline. Why not take a backhand? He's got one of the best two-handed backhands in the world and rip it somewhere. I just think slicing it and backing up, he's giving up, he's giving up the ground and, and – not enough with that forehand. So that's interesting, right? Off of a left yeah. core, do you think Nadal would make you pay if he got a sitter forehand right here? I, mean, I think that, that most of the big forehands in the world there are making Djokovic play big time. I also think that Zverev lacks some racket acceleration on his forehand, and that ball has no pace on it because it hit that let cord. And I do think Zverev has trouble generating on that kind of ball. Yep. There's your running forehand. So, so if, if Pete Sampras was playing this match right here, so look where, look where he is. Look how deep he is on this backhand. He would run across the court right here. He would run across instead of reaching. So 
Zarev reaches a lot on this wide forehand instead of moving through it more. He just stops his momentum and he misses that forehand. So that wide forehand is a huge hole. Everyone on the tour knows it. And it's going to give him a lot of trouble if he's got the yips on the serve and he's struggling with his wide forehand. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been great. I think that, again, I think one of the biggest and most relevant takeaways from this exhibition tennis is that Zverev, who trained really hard, actually, throughout this entire pause and posted on Instagram and actually said, you're going to know who's put in all the hard work. And by the way, let me interrupt real quick. Sure. What was he posting? A lot of work in the gym. Yes. Yeah. So what I, so this is what I said to someone. I said, you know what? He's showing all these things in the gym and how much he's lifting. I want to see drills of him doing running forehands. I want to see drills of him making the ball jump short in the service box. And I want to see an improved service motion. He's working on the wrong things. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on it again. It's unbelievable that a player who wins this many tour level matches and just made an Australian open semifinal has that much more potential that can possibly be unlocked. Yeah. Gil, unbelievable to be able to break this down with you and to go deep into kind of the inside of how a player could develop. And what we talked about earlier was that every time I see Zarev play, I see the same holes. I, sometimes it's more pronounced, but I see the running forehand. I see the forehand uh, overall, the positioning in the court, the serve. And I see Instagram pictures of lifting in the gym and great, get stronger. But your forehand is not bigger by being in the gym lifting weights. It gets bigger by improving your footwork, your court positioning, your hand speed on the ball, doing the right drills every day. He could spend a lot less time in the gym and a lot more time working on his game. And maybe he's doing all that, but it's not translating. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and and expecting different results. I think people are going to really enjoy this. Uh, So thanks again for coming on and we'll talk again soon. Loved it. Thanks. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcast. Yes.